Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. All right, um, so welcome back to our, uh, I guess now this is our fourth study on the book of Daniel. So tonight we'll be covering chapters seven and eight. Um, Let's pray and let's jump right in. There's a lot to get through. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, every time we open your word, uh, we want to just come before you with humble hearts and minds and ask simply, Lord, that you would teach and equip us, Lord. Uh, We're so thankful that you have designed it, that as we read your word, we are cleansed, we are purified, uh, we are instructed, and uh, the greatest thing is that through this, we are also equipped to follow you more closely and to be better servants. So tonight, Lord, we offer ourselves, um, and I pray, Lord, that you use my mouth, Lord, to bring forth uh, the things that you want to say uh, to your people. In Jesus' name we all pray, Amen. amen. Daniel 7 and 8. Now, previously we've been in uh, the section of the the book of uh, Daniel that I would call Daniel the man. It had mostly to do with the history of Daniel, how he came to be a captive in Babylon, how he then became also a captive and servant within Medo-Persia, which is where we got into last week in chapters 5 and 6. And... One commentator put it this way, that the first six chapters is mostly historical, or a, a kind of a story of, an, of a narrative of, of Daniel's life and the experiences he had, as well as, of course, his friends, um, with peppering in the prophetic element, specifically, of course, that we see in chapters two and chapters four with the dream that he interprets, of uh, the dreams, rather, of Nebuchadnezzar. So largely history and then some prophecy. Beginning in chapter 7 through the duration of the book, the opposite is true. There is a little bit of history and a lot of prophecy. So these next chapters, these next couple of sessions, in fact, are going to be quite thick. Um, I myself, (laughs) I hope this doesn't scare you, but um, I usually come with about one or two pages of notes. These chapters have pushed me to seven. (laughs) I'm not going to say them all. But I, I, I say that to tell you that there's just a lot of information. So if I don't cover every little detail within it, um, feel free to ask me about it afterwards or, or chat with me about it at another time. I'll try my best to, to get into things. Um, let's look at the beginning of, of chapter 7, and then I have a couple comments as we, as we go into this, this section, which is mostly, again, about the prophetic element, the things of, of, of the future. Um, It says here, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and we'll just stop right there. Um, In the first year of Belshazzar, now we know because of that statement that we're actually going backwards historically. We ended in chapter six with the Medo-Persians, with Darius the Mede, and eventually with Cyrus. Belshazzar, as you probably recall, is back in the reign, or the end of the reign of the Babylonians. So there is also less chronology as we proceed into the prophetic books. Excuse me, the prophetic chapters uh, of chapters 7 through 12 in, in Daniel. Um, and 
within that Babylonian era, of course, we have reference to the first prophecy, which was the prophecy of the the man with the gold head and the silver and all this kind of stuff. And if, if you haven't gotten the handouts, they're in, they're in the back there. You can grab them. Um, now, before we get into anything further, I want to point out a couple of things about prophecy before we get into them. First of all, prophecy often has a previous mention and a later fulfillment. Oftentimes, in addition to the later fulfillment, it has more than one fulfillment. So for example, sometimes um, a, a, a statement will be given and it will have fulfillment. So the initial statement here, it will have fulfillment here, but then it will also like kind of echo again later. And this is very important because as you've probably read and noticed sometimes when reading the Old Testament or going from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have this idea of what's called a typology. A typology is simply that we are introduced to an idea or a concept previously. It occurs here and then we see it happening again. We talked about this, uh, for example, in the Old Testament with with Moses. Moses in some ways is a kind of type of, of Christ because he's the one who is given the law. We also talk about this, so he has that thing about uh, bringing that forth. We also talk about this with Joshua. That Joshua is the one who then took the people into the promised land and therefore Joshua has, there's aspects of his life that lead us to understand aspects of the Christ. And that's very important because that's how we learn as human beings. We're introduced to an idea early on and then we can recognize it later because it's a repetition of what we've seen before. When you were young and you experienced the love of maybe a mom or a dad or maybe as an uncle or maybe a grandmother, that kind of idea of pure love and then you met Christ or you met someone in the church who also connected the dots of yeah, that's what real love is, it helps you to understand that's the essence of it, and you can recognize it. I remembered when I, was, when I was first learning about Christ, I recognized him not only because of what I was reading about him, but because of things happening within me. I had been exposed to certain aspects of love, and I recognized in him was the kind of fulfillment of this. Turn with me to a couple of places in the Bible that tell us about this interesting thing. So for example, in 2 Colossians 2.16, again, you can, you can turn here, you can just listen. In 2 Colossians 2.16, it says this, let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So we have the pronouncement of the shadow. This is the, the first idea given. And then we have the idea of the substance. And of course, what it says there in the scriptures is that those things were a shadow, but the substance of those things was Christ, right? Your real rest, your real Sabbath isn't just a day, it's a person, right? And then in, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse one, it says this, for the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach Perfect. Again, this word shadow, the law is a shadow. There's nothing wrong with the law, but the law can't save you. It's a shadow. It's something that it has later fulfillment. The same thing is true as we deal with the prophetic element. 
The prophetic element gives us a, a shadow of a reality, but then we also have a substance. Now, one more step. As we go through these chapters, very often what we will see is that this kind of idea is also reflected in a chronology, which means that the idea of the prophecy is fulfilled in a first situation and then also then fulfilled in, at a second time. So a first time and a second time later on. And very importantly, the space in between them, most often when we go from Old Testament into New Testament, the space between them that is skipped over is the space known as the church age. Most prophecy, not all, reflects actually the issue of the nation of Israel. How Israel is then approached by God and what happens to Israel. And so as we go through this, I'm going to be referring back to this a lot as we go through these next chapters because the shadow and the substance, the first happening, the second happening of that is very, very commonly reiterated over and over and over when we think, when we think through prophecy. So just a kind of preface, if you will, to get us started about the understanding of prophecy. And as we go through these chapters, I think it will become clearer and clearer why that is. Let's begin and dig in chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head. Notice that it's plural, visions of his head while on his bed. Now this is important to note. Up until now, every vision we've had has been not from Daniel or to Daniel, but to someone else, and then Daniel was the interpreter. Now Daniel himself is receiving the vision from God, and this is what he sees. Verse two, oh, I'm sorry, end of verse one. Then he wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Daniel spoke saying, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The great sea is simply a term for the Mediterranean Sea. And as we will see, um, these nations that we're gonna be talking about and referring to all are around the Mediterranean. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And I watched until its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man and a man's heart was given to it. You should probably know this by now as far as just reviewing our other studies, but this emblem, this, this figure is about the kingdom of Babylon, right? This is the similarity to the gold head of the original statue. And indeed, the Babylonian kingdom had this mascot, basically, for, for uh, like on their banners, a, 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 um, a lion with eagle's wings. Now, of course, the lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man is most likely a reference to Nebuchadnezzar, who went kind of crazy because he defied and sinned and went against the Lord and later humbled himself and was given a man's heart, if you remember that in, back in chapter 4. Now, verse five, and suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, arise, devour much flesh. And this of course is our second kingdom. If you, if you have the original handout of the statue, you'll notice that not only does it say 
the name of the empire, but then it also has here the lion, and now with the bear, this is Medo-Persia. Now, Medo-Persia was a combination of two people groups, the Medes and the Persians. And when it says it was lifted up on one side, it's this idea of like, like if you could imagine it was like this, like one side is either more powerful or more able, the other side weaker. The idea works in two ways. One, historically, the Medes were the first to do the conquering um, of the Babylonians. They actually were into that fight, the first, and then the Persians kind of joined with them, and then later the Persians became dominant. So the Persians were the stronger of the two, and the Medes were the primary or the first ones of the two. The three ribs in its mouth, there is some debate on this, but most likely this refers to the fact that they kind of took over three particular uh, lands in the, in, in the midst of their empire, of the Medo-Persians. Um, let's see. The, oh yes, Babylon, of course, Lydia, and then later Egypt. So these are the three nations that they took over in the conquering of land. And of course, and they took over a, a, a great swath of land, as it says there, arise, devour, much flesh. They took over many people groups. After this, verse 6, I looked and there was another like a leopard. So this is now our third nation. Do you guys happen to remember what our third nation was? Greece, right, the Greeks. Another like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. Now, with the Greeks and this idea of the four winds, the Greeks conquered the world primarily under Alexander the Great, their, their greatest leader, very quickly. Their, their world domination was immense. In fact, he controlled this, this vast Greek empire before the age of 30. Of course, he died just a few years later after a, a, a drunken, debaucherous night. But anyhow, um, he took over the land very, very quickly. And, but when he died, the land was divided amongst his four generals. And we will be coming back to these four generals a little later, so I'm going to spend a little time talking about this. Um, do you guys still need this whole typology thing up here? Okay, good, because I'm going to erase it. At least I'm going to erase the bottom part. Here are the four generals that took over from Alexander the Great. We have Seleucus. And this was the land of Syria, as well as, uh, I misspelled Syria, 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 <laughs> and also parts of Israel. Uh, then we have Ptolemy, you probably have heard about Ptolemy. Ptolemy was the general that took over the land of Egypt. Uh, Cleopatra famously came from the Ptolemies. Then we have Cassander. Cassander was given the, the region of Macedonia or parts of Greece. And lastly, we have Lysimachus. And Lysimachus was Asia Minor, also known as modern day Turkey.
Now, we will be coming again back to these four generals. So keep them, and if you're taking note, go ahead and write them down because they're quite important for how this works out. Now, you have to remember, at this time, Daniel is, let's see, end of the Babylonians. This is probably late 500s. This, referring to the Greeks, the Greeks, if you look at your, uh, your handout, the Greeks ruled from 331 to 168 BC. So this is at least 200 years before. And sometimes you have to kind of stand back when you're, you're given prophetic information and you're like, you gotta be like, okay, so this means that 200 years before this history happened under Greece, post-Alexander the Great, that God knew not only that there would be an empire that conquered the world quickly, but that the person would die and it would be divided into four, into four generals and they would rule and, and, and reign in, in, in such a way. That's a pretty interesting fact. And as we dig more and more and more into these prophetic things, my, my hope is that you understand and, and kind of become more and more enamored with the Lord who gives these things because it is, it is for accuracy's sake, right? It's for the foretelling of history that we may trust not only what he has said and has come to, to play in the past, but similarly so that when he says things will come to be in the future, we will say yes and amen because he's the one who brings them to fulfillment. Anyhow, that's the end of verse six the beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. So those are the, the four heads, the kingdom was divided into four people. Now, that's actually the end of the first vision. As we go into sec, uh, to verse seven, you'll no notice that it says, after this I saw in the night visions. So this is a something else, a, a different vision, or maybe an addendum to this vision. I saw something else. And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Let's stop there. This is the first beast we are told of that does not have an animal counterpart. It doesn't say anything about what it stands for. There's no lion, there's no dolphin, there's no stink bug, nothing, right? It's just a beast. That right away tells us that we're dealing with something different in how we kind of look at this uh, prophetic word. Notice also it says huge iron teeth. Do you guys remember this, was this word iron? Do you guys remember that it was attached to another kingdom? It was attached to the fourth kingdom that we read about in in Daniel chapter two, which is which kingdom? The Roman Empire. And furthermore, we read previously about the Roman Empire that later the Roman Empire uh, was mixed with clay and, and these were the, 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 the toes or the feet of that statue. And how many toes? There were 10 toes. Here again, we're given that number 10. That's a very important number in understanding what this means prophetically. Here it has 10 horns. Horns, generally speaking in the Bible, are a symbol of power, a symbol of an authority, either a, a king or someone who has great power in the land. It was different from all the beasts. So there's something that sets this beast apart. 
In fact, many things. Verse eight, I was considering the horns, so he's, he's noticing the horns. And I, I must point out that this fact also at this point, Daniel is seeing this vision from, God's given him the vision, and he's seeing these kingdoms as beasts. Remember, how did Nebuchadnezzar look at the kingdoms? He saw, he saw them as fine or precious metals or things of power, something glorious. This is described, they're describing the same kingdoms, but now these are beasts. So there's a different perspective on them that God is giving Daniel than what God showed to Nebuchadnezzar. I was considering the horns and there was another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now, this is incredible detail. A horn, an 11th horn, and then it digs out or takes the place of three others. And not only does it do this, but it has eyes and a mouth. This is a, a human. This is somebody, this is representing somebody who's doing a tremendous amount of, of uh, kind of uh, the taking over of other people's territory. And that, of course, is very unique too, right? We don't read about anything about, about the, the, the leopard or anything about the lion or anything about the bear having anything like this. Now, we're going to fill in some of these gaps in just a moment. But I want to look ahead to what happens next, because this is kind of bringing us to an interesting point within the text. And, and yes, for those of you who are probably anticipating this, we, we're going to be getting into the discussion of, of uh, the Antichrist and the kingdom that will rule at the time of the Antichrist, which is the time of the end. But at this point in the vision that is given to Daniel, things stop, and in verse nine, we have a completely different scene change, which is actually quite important. So all this is happening. The beasts are revealed to him. The fourth beast, very different, very odd, pompous words, eyes, the horn, all this kind of stuff. And then immediately, verse nine, scene change. I watched till thrones were put in place. What? Thrones, what is he talking about? And the Ancient of Days was seated. Now the Ancient of Days is another name for God. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Now, turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter five. Bless you.
Revelation chapters 4 and 5, actually. Notice here, verse 9 of chapter 4, it says, Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. We've just read, of course, about the Ancient of Days being seated. And then in chapter 5, continuing on, verse 5, it says, but one of the elders said to me, so this is a heavenly scene that we are, re- we are reading about in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. He says, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And it says, and I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the hand of him who sat on the throne. And now when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. And we could, we could go on to this. The whole idea of, this, of, these, of these two sections within chapters four and five is the idea of we have a, a throne, we have a seated God the Father, and then we have the Messiah, the Son, Jesus Christ, who is then taking the scrolls. Most people think that's the title deed of the earth. Now, the reason why this is so important, and I kind of jumped ahead a little bit here, is because this scene is basically an echo. I mentioned before about the shadow and the substance. This scene is pretty much an echo of exactly what we read in Daniel. And that's important for two reasons. First, it tells us that these things have, from Daniel, have a reflection in the future but they also give us a more specific reference as far as the chronology, when these things are to take place. Because Revelation 4 and 5 happen at a specific time in kind of heavenly history, and this is history in the future. Look with me in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here. Now, this is by most biblical scholars known as the kind of the calling forth of the rapture of the church. This is something that John is specifically experiencing in this, but this tells us that the rapture of the church, this end time period has happened, and now the church is in the heavenlies. And that, at that point is when the Lord is seated and when Jesus receives the title scroll of the earth. Now, Go back to Daniel, and you have to kind of, you know, kind of place one on top of the other. You know how sometimes when you put two images together to kind of see the full picture. Go back to Daniel. This pompous, these pompous words, this, this thing spoken of by this horn happens, and then the scene, which is reflected in Revelation, of the rapture of the church and the receiving of Jesus Christ of the kingdom. A thousand thousands ministered, 10,000 times 10,000 took before him. That's a million and 10 million. And then it says in verse 11, I watched them because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. 
I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So he's now talking about the actual destruction of this fourth beast. And then, verse 13, we're back to that section that we read about in Revelation chapter 5. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, the reason why I go into such kind of detail there is because I think that what it shows us as far as the the history and the future history um, is very, very important because it places this issue of Daniel's prophecy, not just at the shadow, but at the substance. And that's what I'm going to get into right now. The shadow of this fourth beast, we've already discovered. The shadow is the kingdom of Rome, right? The kingdom of Rome. And the substance then, what's referred to in the future, is then the kingdom that the Antichrist will take over. This little horn is irrefutably the Antichrist. But what kingdom does he come from? Most people think that in the future what will happen is that this will be a kind of reformed or reunification of the former Roman Empire. And it's kind of interesting. Think about your schooling growing up. Think about the things that you were exposed to. Think about the ideas that you were exposed to. The kingdoms that we're talking about here tonight maybe aside from Babylon as far as it's, uh, it's what, what we know of it, but the, the philosophies that came from, from Greece, the ideas that came from Greece, the ideas that came from Rome, for the, from the Romans, are very much still in play today. In fact, they kind of govern a lot of the education, a lot of the even philosophy and culture that people have put together over time. I remember when I was a, a young person, being given a book about Rome. And I was like, well, why am I reading about Rome? I'm 10 years old. I want to play soccer. But it was like, no, you need to know about this because this is an interesting piece of history. And indeed, Rome is fascinating, right? It has the, there's, the, there's aspects of, certain aspects of democracy and, and republicanism that we actually have incorporated in, even into, into our own nation. Think of the Greeks, the philosophers. Those philosophers are studied today, in terms of a general education of philosophy. They, they, I don't think they're spot on <laughs> by any means, but these things have influenced and come to, pay, come to pass in our culture and in our thinking and in our being. When it says there in verse 12, as for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Yes, those kingdoms that we read about before did pass away as far as their ability to rule, but their ideas... The things lived on past them, and it says there, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. We are still living with the echoes and after effects of these cultures. They have an effect upon us today. And again, this issue of what happens in Revelation, what is revealed to us there in chapters four and five as far as the rapture of the church being brought up to the heavenlies and what happens exactly at that point in history is this. 
Rome at some point before that has become a world empire. And there are most likely 10 kings that rule. Now we know historically that Rome never had such a situation where 10 kings ruled. But we also know that Rome never historically had, had three rulers that were uprooted by an 11th ruler. We also know that this 11th ruler never spoke such pompous words, although Rome had its problems, of course. But the idea is this, what is spoken about Rome, what is the connecting point, has not occurred in the past. With all the former beasts, yes, their history is done. But this revelation here of this fourth beast that is, again, unique because it is not named. Unique because it has a little horn. Unique because it has eyes. Unique because it has a mouth. Unique because of what it is communicating tells us that this is a very different thing. And this refers to the substance of what this is talking about, which is a future Roman Empire. Now, let me give you just a couple interesting points. I've talked about this uh, historically, philosophically. But let me just give you a couple interesting things about the history of Rome. Right now, in, in Europe, um, we have what's called the European Union, right? It is a block of 27 countries that are unified. They have their own currency. We know that a couple of years ago, Britain decided to get out of it, for example. The original treaty that caused the European Union to come into being was called the Treaty of Rome. The original agreement that they wanted to become a, a, a group was called the Club of Rome. Um, in the 20th century, wow, it's really coming down out there, isn't it? In the 20th century, there was a very famous um, um, ruler in Italy and of Rome by the name of Mussolini. Mussolini had a lot of problems. <laughs> you probably have heard of some of them. This is what Mussolini himself uh, said um, regarding what he thought about Rome. Mussolini said this, and it, is, it actually is, a, it is a, uh, a mockery of the Apostles' Creed. He said this, I believe in Rome eternal the mother of my fatherland, and Italy her firstborn, who was born of a virgin womb, and by the grace of God, who suffered under the barbarian invader, was crucified, slain, and buried, who descended into the sepulcher, and rose from the dead in the 19th century, who ascended to heaven in her glory in 1918, that's the end of the First World War, and 1922 by the march on Rome, and who is seated at the right hand of Mother Rome, who will come to judge the quick and the dead, I believe in the genius of Mussolini. That's always a giveaway when you're calling out your own genius in a speech, but anyhow, I think you understand it was a, a madman. I believe in the genius of Mussolini and her holy father, fascism, and in the communion of its martyrs, and in the conversion of the Italians, and in the resurrection of the empire. This is his own restating of the Apostles' Creed, referencing the nation and Rome. This is what Mussolini had to say. A couple other interesting things historically also about Rome. Um, a lot of rulers in the world have come and when they encountered Rome, rather than defeating it, they kind of joined with it. You probably have heard of Charlemagne, right? Uh, the great leader in the, um, let's see, what, what year is this? Uh, oh, I only have it. 
I think, I forget, actually I forget when Charlemagne ruled, but he was descended from a Roman house. Otto, uh, the German emperor, Otto II, who was, this is in 1955, 1983, he was also eventually became the Holy Roman Emperor. The Russian Grand Prince Vladimir inter- intermarried with the daughters of the East Roman Empire. Uh, oh, and about re- regarding Charlemagne, I'm sorry, I just read it in my notes. He was crowned Emperor of the Romans by Pope Leo III, and he was the father of Europe, which united most of Western Europe, which is the first time that that had happened since classical Rome. So historically, Rome has had this kind of rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall and rise and fall over and over again. It may be that they connected with other world leaders and they intermarried with them in order to have power. This is a very common theme within worldly organization. It could be that they got some of their power from the church. Of course, there was the, the great schism of 1054 and the, the separation of the Roman uh, Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox. But Rome has held on to a certain power. Do you not know even today that Rome is actually, within Rome, Vatican City, is its own little nation. They have complete control over what goes on there. I I, I said this, I think, before, but I don't know if you knew this, but even up until a couple of years ago, within Vatican City, they had a law that young girls could be married as young as the age of 13. They finally just got rid of that. All this to say that the influence of Rome, the fluctuation of Rome throughout history has led it not to be a kingdom that has died, but rather it's more like smoldering. And this is kind of how we have to look at history, is not just who's in power now, but why hasn't the former power gone out completely? Why do they still maintain this? And of course, what will then cause this to happen? We'll get into more of this as far as how Rome then intersects with this issue of the leader, the future leader, who would be the Antichrist as we go on to chapter eight. Let's continue now uh, from verse 15. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by me and asked him the truth of all this, and so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So now we get a kind of further clarification of these things that he was, was, was had in the vision. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High, interesting, look where he goes immediately after that first utterance of, yeah, these are four kings. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. Well, why does he go into that area? And they will possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, this is so fascinating to me. What does the, the Holy One, does the angel reveal to him? Yes, these things will happen, but who, who will actually get this kingdom eventually? It's the saints. Now, a word about the saints. It doesn't just mean New Testament believers. We've, we've seen this song, right? Oh, when the saints go marching in. Oh, when the saints go, come on, guys, marching in. Oh, I want, to, come, come on, to be in that number. When the, okay, we need to work on the choir aspect of this church, seriously, like. But saints really, I mean, there are are Old Testament saints, 
There are, there are saints, of course, during the church age. You, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. We just talked about saints, actually, in the book of Ephesians, right? As, as Aaron was, was teaching this last Sunday. There will also be future saints. Those who come to faith in Christ during the time known as the tribulation. Now, I'm just gonna go into this really quickly. This idea of the shadow and the substance and the church age, as soon as the church age is over and that rapture happens, the next thing that's gonna come on the world stage historically is the great tribulation, a seven-year period, and we will get into those, those details. A seven-year period in which people, the, the saints are very much um, uh, uh, fought against by this character, the Antichrist. And again, we'll get into that in uh, Daniel chapter eight. But again, who will receive the kingdom? I mean, don't you sometimes, as you live, you, you go through certain things in life, certain, certain things happen. Maybe, maybe you dreamed that life would be like this. Maybe this thing has happened. Maybe whatever is going on in your life, even, even currently. And then you read a sentence like that, but, but the saints will receive the kingdom. And you're kind of like, oh yeah. It's, it's, it's not about the here and the now completely anyways, right? There is a later time, there, and there is a time where we will receive that kingdom, and it's not because of what we've done, it's because of what Christ is doing and will do, right? So I find a lot of reassurance in just that sentence. Verse 19, now Daniel goes back, he kind of like presses him for more information, but wait, wait, wait a second, he says. But then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. He realizes something is distinct and different about him which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet and the 10 horns that were on its head and the other horn which came up before which the three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth, a mouth which spoke pompous words and whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints. There will be saints, people who come to faith in Christ during the tribulation, when the Antichrist has his seven-year reign on this earth to kind of devour. The church has been taken up in the rapture just before this period, and he is going to make sure that everyone who believes in God, who believes in Christ, who confesses this name, will have the worst possible time imaginable. And if you've read through the book of Revelation, if you've read through those chapters that talk about the things that will happen on the earth, you know it is going to be a horrendous, horrendous time. That horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them until, again, until, right? Just like he said before about the saints are going to, the saints are going to get the kingdom. He's like, and this guy's going to do all this stuff until the Ancient of Days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and this time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. And this is the beginning of what is known as the millennial kingdom. Again, we have the substance. So we have here um, the tribulation. This is seven years. The rapture before it, the church is taken up. And then after, we have the millennial kingdom. The thousand year reign of of Christ upon the earth. And then, then he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth 
which shall be different from all other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, this revised, reformed Roman emperor, uh, Roman, uh, Roman uh, empire, excuse me, and another shall arise after them. That's the 11th one. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. I'm going to come back to this in just a minute in verse 25. But, again, the court shall be seated and they shall take away his dominion, right? To consume and destroy it forever. And then the kingdom and, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account, and as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So this, this kingdom, this reformed Roman Empire, this Antichrist, this one, yes, he will do lots of harm, but at the end, the kingdom will be restored and given to the saints for a thousand years versus the seven. And notice a couple things in here. In verse 25, the pompous words against the Most High. And of course, if you've, if you've read anything about, about Satan, whether it's the re- reflections that are given about him in Isaiah uh, 14, or even what's written about him in Revelation, he's just, this word pompous really is the perfect word. Have you ever, have you ever met a really, really pompous person, someone who's just proud, who just speaks arrogantly against other people? I'm just better than you. You know what? You know what? You're just worth nothing. And they just, they elevate themselves based on nothingness. It's just the ether beneath them. But their words sound as though they have some kind of authority or the power. And yet at the end of the day, you find out, pfft, hot air. It's just hot air. That is the, the that is exactly the essence of this Antichrist. That is exactly the essence of this. And it says that he shall intend to change times and law. And I want to point out one quick thing, one detail that's important here. In verse 25, we read the word times and law, and then later we read that the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. The word for time, the first time, and the word for time, the second time, are not the same word. This, of course, chapter seven is the last chapter that we read that, is, that was originally in the language of Aramaic that began in chapter two, I believe. And the word here for, and shall intend to change times and law is zeman, which means a season or a time as in like how time is structured. Some people have referenced the fact that during the, the French Revolution, for example, um, they tried to change the work week into a 10-day work week. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this. They're like, well, why, why do we have to work for seven days? Why, why are things organized? Why is it a seven-day week? Why can't we have a 10-day week? Why not a 26.3-day week? Well, why is it a month 30 days between 28 and 31 days? Why not a month being 15? And, and, and began to kind of just like, whatever, whatever goes, you know, that, this kind of perspective. And it's possible 
that this Antichrist will do the same kind of thing. He just try to reorganize things according to his own whim and fancy. That would be a pompous thing to do, right? Let's just change a week. Okay, everybody else is, is, is completely set on this, this idea of calendar and has been for thousands of years, but yeah, sure, let's go ahead, whatever. That's Zeman. Now, at the end it says, the saints will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. And the, the word there for time in, in Aramaic is Edan, I-D-A-N, or at least that's the, that's the transliteration. Obviously, I'm not gonna tell you how it's spelled in a foreign language because it's a foreign alphabet, okay. And that means a year of time. And so what this is saying is that the saints will be given into his hand for a time, one year, times two years, and half a time, half a year. That's three and a half years. The tribulation is seven years in length. At the halfway part, the saints are given into end. And actually, most people talk about this, the tribulation, and then the great tribulation is this second half, three and a half years, where things get even worse. And the saints are delivered into his hand. He has what it seems like ultimate control during these last three and a half years. If you read and study more in Revelation, I'm kind of balancing how much to go into it and how much not to because I want to stay within this text. But that's exactly what he's talking about. And most people, uh, as far as you know, kind of conservative scholars, believe that at this three and a half year mark, so three and a half, so halfway through the beginning of the tribulation, there's going to be some kind of treaty uh, that is signed between the Antichrist and the nation of Israel, perhaps letting Israel create and reform its temple that has been uh, lost and has not been in, in, in existence for a long time. And thus will have all the power that he wants. Anyhow, again, verse 26 and 27 tell us that this will eventually end. As, as you can tell, it's, it, is a, it is a predefined period of time. Yes, it'll be seven years of horror, but it is, there is an end. And let's not forget what happens afterwards. A thousand years of Christ ruling and reigning on the earth. That's pretty good to have a thousand years where Jesus is the authority. Anyhow, all this to say that in Daniel chapter seven, the main idea is this, is that this fourth kingdom has a shadow, a, 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 a representation in history past, that being the Roman Empire, but it also has a substance in the fact that it will be coming to fruition again in the future. And then that specific substance, that specific fruition of the Roman Empire in the future is placed within the biblical text of, of Daniel 7 and referenced then to Revelation, which of course Daniel didn't know of at the time. Uh, thankfully, we have this book that we can refer back to. But that little section where we're talking about the seeding of, the, of, of God the Father and the giving of the kingdom to Jesus just after the rapture of the church tells us historically that that is set at a time just preceding and leading into the tribulation I'm sorry, the rapture, the tribulation, and then the millennial reign. Most of what we were referring to here in Daniel 7 is all the stuff, the shadow and the substance is all about this period. And thus, that's why it's so important to understand this about biblical prophecy, that it's not often just a one-time fulfillment, but an initial one, so people learn to recognize it, and then a secondary one. And as I said before at the beginning of this, what is becoming basically a lecture, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard with all, so much information here. Um, and again, that's, that's how we learn. When you learn how something is and it comes again, you recognize it. 
Just as we learned about the things and about how Rome existed and how Rome has existed in, in world history, so then people can learn, hey, to watch out for this kind of kingdom to come, to watch out for these kings to come, and thus to recognize it. Let's move on to chapter eight. Now, it says, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. Now, again, back in chapter six, we were into the Medes and the Persians and Darius. Here, now, another vision is given to Daniel. And when is it? It's not after. It's again before. It's back during the time of Belshazzar, the last of the Babylonian kings. This is now the third year. The first vision in chapter seven was in the first year of Belshazzar. Now we're in the third year of King Belshazzar. And it says, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Ulai. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram which had two horns, and the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Look in verse 20 now of chapter 8, as it tells us exactly what this is. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And this is very similar to what we read about in chapter seven, right? This idea of this kind of, uh, kind of this hunchback, one raised, one lowered, right? This is that same kingdom. This is Medo-Persia. And then it says, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no animal could withstand him. I'm trying to see if I can remember this in my notes here. Yes. So the only area in which the Medo-Persians did not conquer was into the east, into the orient of India and China. Um, and we actually know this from history also, that the, the, the Medo-Persians had the head of a ram that was at the head of his army. So this is again another kind of animal that was an insignia in their kingdom. And it says, of course, in verse four, that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand, but he did great, he, he did according to his will and became great. Of course, this is the bear that took over the three, the, the three, uh, the three ribs in its mouth. It's the same character, just with a different animal type. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand." And turn with me, of course, to verse, uh, to verse 21 of, of Daniel chapter 8, where it says here, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Guys, if you're ever wondering what, what does something prophetically mean, just keep reading. <laughs> don't, you don't have to make up a bunch of stuff, right? The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. It will help fill in the gaps. It may be in another book, it may be in another section, but it will give the commentary. And in fact, this is the clearest representation that we have of these kingdoms here given in chapter eight, even clearer than seven and even clearer than in chapter two. 
So the male goat is the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. Now, not the first as in the, 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 the only one that came chronologically first, but is in greatest. I don't know if you guys know this, but uh, Alexander the Great was actually the son of Philip of Macedon. When we read in the New Testament about the Philippians, they are from a place called Philippi, which was named after the king of Alexander the Great, Philip. I've been to Philippi, and interestingly enough, Philip was harmed in one of his battles. One of his legs was shorter, and a couple of years ago, I forget how many, between 50 or 100 years ago, this is archeological evidence, they dug up these interesting shin guards where one of them, when they were very kingly, they weren't just kind of those of a peasant or something, and one of the shin guards was much longer than the other. It's interesting. You can see that in a, in a, in a museum in Philippi today in modern-day Greece. I was fascinated when I found that out. I was fascinated. As I'm fascinated by finding out a lot of this stuff. And guys, there's even more here. Like, I'm skipping over swaths of things. There's just, there's so many details. So feel free to kind of listen to other commentaries, reread these chapters, you know, immerse yourself in it because it's just, there's, there is absolutely so much. So in this chapter so far, we are kind of reviewing two specific kingdoms, right? We're reviewing the Medo-Persians, which is the ram, the two, the two horns, the, the, the one is bigger than the other, the Medes and the Persians. And then we're dealing with the goat, right? Which is, and, the, and his first king, yeah, not the goat is in the greatest of all time. Although, although, you know, Alexander the Great was in some ways would probably consider himself that way. Um, interestingly enough, Alexander the Great, according to the historian Josephus, um, was at one point in his campaign actually decided to, to go in and try to take over Jerusalem. But when he got there, the priests came out and actually showed him this prophecy from Daniel, which of course took place much, much before, right? About two, more than, excuse me, more than 200 years before. Um, and showed him, hey, this is you in the prophetic record. And he was so astounded that the Jewish God had told of him that he left Jerusalem completely alone. He just went his way. This plays into a, a further detail that we'll, we'll, we'll learn about in just, in just a bit here. Anyhow, the Medes and the Persians, then the Greeks, and of course, okay, so now back to where we were before. Verse eight of Daniel chapter eight, therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. Those four notable ones are the ones that we talked about before. This is yet another description of the division of the Greek empire into the Seleucids, or the, what became the Seleucid, Ptolemy, Cassander, and Lysamachus. Those will be the, the generals that took over those particular areas. Now, our focus, just as in, in chapter seven, was on, on the idea of of Rome being a, a typology of what will be a, a world government at the time of the end. Okay, that was kind of the summary point of chapter seven, was the focus on this fourth kingdom, right? And then, of course, a little bit about the ruler. In chapter eight, the focus is on these two kingdoms and one specific person that comes out of that. That person will be the Antichrist. But notice the Antichrist is not the one that comes from the Roman era, 
but the typology actually comes from the Greek era. Again, Rome and Greek. Rome and Greek. What are the cultures that have had so much influence upon us? And now we see prophetically how much they will again come back to bear on our, our, our world. I was listening to a commentator and he said the most interesting thing. He said, you know, very often we think about like an antichrist. You think about someone who is going to do terrible things upon the earth. And we think, well, we, we must be looking for someone who is just the most dastardly person you've ever met, right? Like, like, like when we look at like the Lord of the Rings, for example, you see these beasts that are like kind of coming up of the earth and it's like, well, it's easy to reflect on the fact that these are the bad guys because they look like bad guys. But historically, actually, it's been quite the other way around. Some of the most, you know, affluent and cultured and civilized and pinkies up. Some of those cultures have turned out to be the most menacing. Germany, before World War II, was an incredible culture. How did it get taken over by a Hitler? They voted him into power. Mussolini and the Italians, an incredible culture of music and opera and, and philosophy. The Germans, I mean, so many throughout history when we think about an antichrist, someone who will come and take over the Roman Empire in the future, it's probably going to be the smoothest talker, the most respected, cultured person you've ever met in your life, you know? Anyhow. So now we're dealing with this specific history and, an, and a typology or an antitype that will come out of them. And we are really going to be focusing on this one specific people group, the Seleucids. And out of one of them, verse nine, came a little horn. That's the same little horn that we read about from chapter seven. Which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, which is another name for the land of Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven and it cast down some of the host. Well, that's interesting verbiage, isn't it? Grew up to the host of heaven. How, what does that mean, right? It means it got involved somehow in the heavenly aspects or maybe what you would call the temple or worship aspects of the nation of Israel. It cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And he cast what to the ground? He cast truth down to the ground. Guys, our culture right now is dealing very much with the issue of what is true. Much like the famous statement of Pilate when, when Jesus was speaking to him. What is truth? The, the echo of that question reverberates through human history. 
And it is the same thing that this Antichrist will be casting down. If you can cast down truth, what can rise? Anything. There's a famous saying that when you you lose truth, it doesn't just make you susceptible to something. It makes you susceptible to anything. Some of the things that are coming up within our culture, some of the ideas that are being espoused are not just, you know, less than good. They're polar opposite. They're so mind-bogglingly, mind-bogglingly, is that it? That's, I, I think I nailed it there. <laughs> it, insane. Beyond even foolish. That's exactly what an antichrist, that exactly what somebody who's exalting itself against God does. They cast truth down to the ground. He did all these things and prospered. Now, who is this? Again, we have the shadow and the substance. I think you could probably figure out by now that the substance that it's referring to in the future is the Antichrist. So who was the shadow? Who was the historical figure that it's based on? Within the Seleucid Empire, within the Seleucid group, there arose a number of descendants from Seleucus. Um, and we end up with one particular one whose name is Antiochus. Epiphanes the fourth. Quite the title, right? Now, the Jews, which of course, if, you, if you're reading about what he's, what he's doing and what he would be doing as far as casting out truth and all this stuff, renamed him in a kind of tongue-in-cheek way, Epimanes. Epimanus means madman. Epiphanus, or Antiochus Epiphanus, means glorious, celebrated basically almost like a, a god. In fact, he renamed himself and put on the, the coins of his, of his, of, in his era, Theos Epiphanus, the glorious god. Now, a little bit of history is required for us to understand exactly how all these things kind of came into being. So give me a couple minutes to kind of uh, to, to, walk, to walk through this. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, first of all, be, had his rule not given to him. It's something that he took over. His father was supposed to give it to his son. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. His father was supposed to give it. No, no, wait. He was. He was. He was the brother. I'm sorry. So there was Antiochus the third, and that was his basically his his uncle. He gave, was supposed to give it to his son. Antiochus the fourth killed his son. His son, and all the other descendants, so that he could then take over because he was the only heir left. That's because that's how that works in kind of a monarchical system. So he also came in. And he was furious about a variety of things dealing with Israel because he tried to, he wanted the, uh, the, the history of the Greeks, of course, because he's, he's a descendant of this, to be the only thing that was going on. And actually, remember I told you about, um, about Alexander the Great, how he left 
Jerusalem and Israel largely alone. He was furious about this because he meant that there was this subculture within the larger Greek empire that was not influenced by Greek philosophy and culture. Now, one interesting thing does come from this issue of, of the Greeks taking over and, and being kind of culturally significant for a long period of time, even through the Roman Empire, and that was this, that they unified the language so that the time when the gospel came, when Jesus came upon the earth, the common language that was, was spoken was called Koine Greek. Koine, by the way, is not a, a, a highfalutin word. It means common, common Greek. And because of that, the New Testament and its origins were written in that language. But again, Antiochus Epiphanes wanted the Greeks to have the, the rule, and so he did not like the fact that Alexander the Great, the forebearer, had given them their space. It kind of drove him nuts. And a couple things happened specifically during this time. First of all, the Seleucids began to have more control over the region of Syria and later Israel. And at one point, Israel was was a kind of contested area between Seleucids and Ptolemy, the second one, the ones who took over Egypt. In the, in the reign of Antiochus III, which is what, 198 BC, that land of the glorious land of Israel was now firmly in the grasp of the Seleucids. And there's this really interesting thing that, has, that happened um, within, within the history of the Seleucids and under Antiochus the fourth. So, and this plays into what we read about in verse 12. It says, because of transgression. Now, because of transgression, I'm going to read it. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn, that is to, to this forebearer, this Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, to oppose the daily sacrifices. In order to control Jerusalem at this time, when they were now having more uh, more influence over how it was run, they began to put their own high priests in office, right? Because if they can control the leadership, they can control the land. Same thing that happens in almost every occupation. And so he put his own high priest in there, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now this other guy wanted to be high priest instead and paid a bribe so that he could be the high priest. And this, of course, really you know, really offended Antiochus. So he came in there and said, no, 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 I'm going to put my guy back. And so there's this kind of countering. And the problem was, the transgression that is spoken of in verse 12 is not the transgression of Antiochus Epiphanes, it's the transgression of the Jews. The Jews at this point were just as kind of horrific in their leadership style as Antiochus they began to actually sell off some of the goods from the temple in order to kind of fund themselves. They just, it was just another power struggle going on and it was going back and forth and back and forth and it says because of transgression. The Jews, they were not standing honorably. They were not operating in any kind of uh, a, a way to kind of to go against. They were just kind of playing the game. You've seen people play the game. <laughs> and it says because of transgression in army. So, he took the Syrian army and he got so mad and so frustrated by all the stuff that was going on that he, he wanted to have control and he was not, not allowed to have it. And they, they were playing their games and he was playing his games. He was just like, I'm done with this. So he marched into Jerusalem in 171 BC to defeat the person who had paid this higher bribe to be high priest. 
a couple years later, in 168, after he had been defeated in Alexandria, he returned and his generals seized Jerusalem on a Sabbath. And at that point in history, he set up an idol of Zeus in the temple. And he desecrated the altar by by slaughtering a pig and sprinkling the, the juices of the pig all around the sanctuary. And that was the day that the sacrifices stopped. Now read again this. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. He calls himself Theos Epiphanes. He said he was the leader of this temple. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. He came in and desecrated the temple. Killing a pig there. And that's when the daily sacrifices were stopped. He put an end to the whole thing. He's like, we're not doing this anymore. We're gonna do things my way. I'm gonna run this thing my way. Don't you remember what we just talked about, right? This idea that the Antichrist would come in and do things however he wanted. 10 day work week, no problem. We'll do it, it's just how I want it. This temple, whose temple is it? It's mine now, I'll do whatever I want here. No sacredness, nothing set apart all completely up to the whim and the fancy of the person who is there. Now, interestingly enough, verse 13, it says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? How long is this going to happen for? And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, there were Jews that were very upset about all this stuff that was happening. And they began to organize and they began to revolt and began to rebel. And they were led at a certain point by a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus of the Maccabeans, the hammer. And they fought back to regain control. And there's a specific day in which they cleansed the temple of all that had happened under Antiochus and Epiphanes IV. And they, 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 they finally chased these guys out of there and they, they got a hold and they cleansed the temple. And that is the day, December 25th, 165 BC. A day we know historically as Hanukkah. That's when they finally got control of the temple again, cleansed it, and they had hardly any resources. They lit lit the menorahs, and the miracle goes that those menorahs, although they ran out of a certain amount of oil, they only had oil for about one day, stayed lit for eight days, and that led into the tradition which we have now, the eight days of the burning of these menorahs, which is still a Jewish custom today. In fact, we read about some of those customs even in the New Testament. If you go back 2,300 days from December 25th, 165 BC, you end up when Antiochus Epiphanes first began his persecution in 171 BC. Remember I told you before that there was this wrangling within the leadership of the temple and the high priest. That was the year that that began. And then 2,300 days later, 
the place was finally cleansed. Now, interestingly enough, I'll just say this as a quick aside. Historically, this passage of the 2300 has been unfortunately abused and reinterpreted as being something that it is not. There was a group of people uh, led by this man named Miller, the Millerites. Have you guys ever heard of the Millerites? All right. They reinterpreted this scripture and said, oh, 2300 days and then the sanctuary will be cleansed. That has to be telling us when Jesus is going to come back. And they ended up with a date from that point of history, from 171, ended up at the year A.D. 1844. And they had convinced a whole group of people that Jesus was going to return at that time. Did Jesus return in 1844? No, he did not. And from that unfortunate, you know, prophetic, you know, kind of twisting and turning, from that, some other people said, well, they got it just a little bit wrong and we're going to now do this. And from them came the Seventh-day Adventists with E.G. White. And on the other side came the Jehovah's Witnesses. You see, one skewed perspective on the return of Christ, and, and many people have made this mistake. I, I can't tell you how many, even within my lifetime, I've heard about people trying to predict the date of Jesus' return. I, guys, it's utterly foolish. The only thing you can know is a season and that Jesus is coming and that you are to be ready. That's the only thing you can know. You talk to somebody who says they're going to come at this point or at this time. If it's not a season describing what's going to happen, they don't know. Sorry, they, just, they don't know. And when people lead into that stuff, it ruins stuff. And people get led astray and they start creating what are known as Christian cults. Cults that are based on ideas that take one little thing and then go way off, way off. Biblical prophecy is interpreted by the Bible, right? 2,300 days is 2,300 days. And when you interpret it literally, when it says that, if, unless, unless the biblical text tells you that this word is spiritual or that this word has another meaning to, to help you understand it, you have to take it as it is. This is what the literal interpretation of God's word and the literal interpretation of prophecy is all about. It's not about not understanding that there can be other things. I mean, Jesus, when he spoke, he said, my words, they are spirit in our life. He spoke spiritual things to us. That's great. We know that because he told us these were spiritual truths. But here, it doesn't say, and the 2300 days are then this and this and this and this. As we get into chapter nine of next week, we're gonna be dealing with this issue of the 70 weeks. The weeks are not weeks, actually. There's a word that's interpreted as a seven-year period of time. And if you know that from the language, you understand how to interpret it. Here, it's just a day. And if it's a day, then it's a day. And when you look at it, it makes sense historically as well. 2,300 days between the beginning of Antiochus Epiphanes and when he began to persecute the Jews in a specific way, and then the cleansing of the temple at the time of December 25th, 165 BC, Hanukkah. I have to get through the rest of this. Excuse me, I'm just gonna have to kind of quickly read from here. Then it happened, verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli who called and said, Gabriel, this is the first time that we read of Gabriel, the angel in the Bible. 
make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. This is basically the biblical way of saying this shadow has a substance at the end at the time when this rapture, this tribulation, of course it doesn't say that specifically, but the time of the ends as far as how we understand history and that's where this comes to play. So again, this gives us another biblical reason to understand that this Antiochus Epiphanes, this one that comes from Seleucus, that comes from the Greek culture, the real substance is yet to be. Again, that's because the biblical text tells us that. We're not inventing that. I'm not creating that. I would be totally fearful <laughs> to say anything like that from a pulpit. It refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking, verse 18, with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. And again, we have this now, these, these descriptions in 2021. 20, the ram which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with its, own, not, but not with its power. And in the later time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise, having feast features, and this is definitely, this is the Antichrist. A king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, and we know this when we read about the beast in the book of Revelation, the beast is given his power by who? By Satan himself, by the devil. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. Not truth, right? He casts truth down to the ground. He shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. But, again, we have these buts but he shall be broken without human means. Do you remember back in Daniel chapter two and it says the stone that was made without human hands comes and destroys this kingdom. That is the Christ coming back to rule and reign in the millennial kingdom and surely Jesus will rule and reign. I won't go into the prophecies, but from Psalm two, for example, in other places, we, we know that Jesus is going to rule in a real way, not just meek and mild. So he will be broken without human means. We're told in the book of Revelation that at the time of the end, there's not some kind of great fight. God just says, okay, that's enough, basically. The seven years are up, you had your time. Okay, get out of here. And that's when the beginning of, he locks Satan in the great abyss, or the abuso. And he's there for a thousand years. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true, Therefore, seal up the vision for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, what was Daniel's response to all this? 
he, he, this is the first time he's been given vision in these couple of years. And, and he have, he's having to swallow, what does all this mean? What is all this tragedy? What is all this overcoming of, 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 of what is good? What is this exaltation of that which is evil? It takes it out of him. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Have you ever received news that just, just, oh, just made you sick to your stomach? He's having to swallow the kingdom that will arise after the rapture of the church. He's having to swallow and be exposed to the antichrist that will come and try to take away the glory and the honor from God. That's a lot. And it says, afterward I rose and went about the king's business and yet he got up, got back on his horse and kept on serving. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. And truly, the book of Daniel has been argued about by many people over many, many years. We now have great fortune that we have the book of Revelation to help us to read that. When, when John received that on the island of Patmos, to kind of put these pieces together. And there are those still today who would claim that the book of Daniel was written way after the time in which it was written, in the, in the late 500s BC, because of course, because of its incredible accuracy to describe something that would happen 200 years later. And then even after that, to describe a specific person that would have come onto the scene. And then to describe a certain length of reign that we would have. Yes, it's incredible. Yes, it's astounding. Yes, it's true. Yes, God gives his prophets things that will come and he's given to us this great gift of Daniel 7 and 8 to know the nature of the kingdom, that it will be a reflection, a shadow, and then the substance that comes from the Roman Empire. And he's also given us the ability to understand that the reflection and substance that has the king that will, will overrule this, these, this, these group of 10 kings that rule in Rome. And notice this is so interesting. In chapter eight, just to close, we are given simply the Medo-Persians and then the Greeks. And we're given just before that the kingdom of Rome. It's not from one or the other. It's the combination that the Antichrist comes just from the Greek dynasty, this one person, and from the Roman Empire, the idea of the king. So there's the kingdom and then there's the king, but they're not from the same background. All this to help us understand that, yes, at some point in the future, a kingdom will arise. And at some point in the future, a person will arise that will bring all this of human history to a certain catastrophic close. But I'll leave you with this. How many times are we told, who will really receive the kingdom? Just like with, with Hitler in World War II. Yes, he had his day. It was terrible. It was tragic. We're still dealing with the echoes of that horror, but he doesn't have it now. Same thing is true for us. The kingdom will come to the saints. We will rule and reign with Christ as followers of him for a thousand years. Guys, our inheritance is so rich, even in the midst of understanding the calamity and the terribleness that will befall before it. We have been given an incredible inheritance. And it talks about that, of course, in the book of um, of Ephesians as well. Shall we pray? Father, thank you so much 
Thank you so much for uh, giving us this time tonight to kind of delve into these deeper issues of, of the, the time of the Antichrist and what will happen at the end, Lord. And Lord, we, will, we pray that you will help us to recall some of the truths from tonight, Lord, that, that you have an inheritance for us and that we will rule and reign with you and that you have a kingdom that you are giving to us, Lord, one that you purchased with your blood, one that you show us about by the Holy Spirit. And, and just as we've seen a shadow and a substance, Lord, you've given us such a shadow now even of what the future will be like with you when, when you have given us the Holy Spirit. But now in the future, it will be that much greater for us when we see you in the flesh, Lord, in your glory, in the heavenlies, and when we see you ruling on the earth and ruling and reigning with you, Lord. You're such a gracious king. You are so different than all these kings, Lord. You don't operate according to any of the oddness and, and terribleness that we see here. You are completely unique in human history, Lord. And you died for your people. And we honor you as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We, we bow before you tonight. And we place any trouble that we have now remembering that you are the kind of king who will help us to get through it. And you are the kind of king who will shelter us and shepherd us as we walk on this earth, knowing that history will be fulfilled according to the way that you have ordained it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray and say thank you. Amen. All right, well, that's, uh, that's it. So if you have any questions, let me know. If not, we'll see you back here next week for chapters nine and 10. Uh, a quick word, chapter nine is almost even more dense than this. So I may only get through one chapter next week. I'm not entirely sure. So just a heads up. <laughs>